Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that explores a full spectrum of spirituality. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very glad you're here today. Okay, in today's episode, I share with you a talk I gave recently that focused on a question, was really an attempt to answer a question that a student sent in over email about the nature of progress in spirituality or progress in meditation. The question was sort of getting at how can we evaluate or chart or make sense of progress on the path. And, and she was kind of lamenting in the email that she felt that she had practiced for a while, but that her mind was still desperately restless. And so in the talk, I refer to this um, this email author as desperately restless, just like in, a, in an advice column. And I, I try to do my best. And I would say this is an, a first pass at this question, um, sort of a first draft, if you will. I'm doing my best at trying to tease out what progress in the spiritual journey might look like. Um, But please know that it's probably going to be open for revision. And at some point in the future, I will flesh out this question more broadly, likely through referencing what Zen referred to as the eight ox-herding paintings, which which are meant to be a, a pictorial description of what progress means, that the paintings themselves symbolize stages or um, developmental thresholds in one's spiritual journey. So I'll, I'll be um, sharing that down the road, I think. But um, before I give you today's talk, I just want to uh, encourage that if you're interested in the themes of this podcast, and so far this year those themes have been primarily concentrated around uh, Dharma themes, themes that relate to contemplation and meditation. Um, but going forward, uh, as I've done in the past, I'll be having guests that come on to speak about different aspects of our bodies, our energy, our mind. Um, I'll be broadening, broadening into themes of and discussions around philosophy um, and, and writing, um, which I'll be explaining more in, in a future episode or two. Um, but if you'd like to uh, kind of supplement what you get from me in the podcast, I encourage you to subscribe to my newsletter. Um, which is actually not so much of a newsletter anymore. Uh, about six months ago, I, I, I started to uh, try to take out uh, much of the marketing content in my newsletter and just give what I used to do much more of, which is just a, a short, pithy Dharma reflection. I used to call it Minute of Mindfulness. And I'm really going to revive that form where my intention is to write a semi-regular letter to you as though you are a good friend of mine, even though we might not know each other, but I'll be um, voicing it as a good friend, or as to a good friend. And I'll be writing a letter with my reflections on engaging in a conversation with a particular teaching, a particular teacher, or my own uh, conversation with my own practice. And my hope is that in inspiring uh, you through the reflection, that they will give you something valuable to take into your own practice, and, um, and chew on in a similar way, if that's of interest. So I'll be loosely calling these Letters from the Path. And um, if you'd like to subscribe to that, just go to my website, joshsummers.net forward slash subscribe. Or on the website itself, the homepage, you'll see a subscribe prompt to that newsletter. And um, just to know that when you do subscribe to that, you will receive two free practice yin yoga videos that I did about a decade ago. 
Um, and uh, in addition to those two yin yoga practices that you'll get, there's also a 10 uh, email series that reflects on really the core principles and aspects of the yin yoga practice. So if you're at all in interested in yin yoga, that will be a bonus. But if you just want to get my uh, semi-regular letters from the path about uh, teachings and practice and my, what I make of them myself and what you might make them of them yourselves, please jump over to my site to um, subscribe to that letter list now. Okay, uh, without further ado, I now give you today's talk, The Tao of Progress. Over the last few weeks, really since the beginning of the year, uh, I've been, as you know, giving a, a series of reflections on a group of mind states um, that are referred to as the hindrances, the difficult energies that one encounters on the path. And um, I had every intention to continue on with that theme tonight, but I received a question from, from one of you. Um, and there's a way that I, I would like to, to there, was a, there was an urgency to the question and there was there's sort of a, a maybe a, a, there's an opportunity to pause the, the regular scheduled program and to address this question. And I hope that even though this, this theme may seem like a little bit of a detour from what we've been covering, the difficult energies, I'm hoping that if you listen carefully, um, you will hear an implicit uh, continuation of the themes that we've already been addressing. So, um, and I, I should also say that uh, this talk is going to be um, sponsored by the late Alan Watts, <laughs> in that I will be, and as I answer this question, I'm going to be sharing some phrases and, and quotations from Alan Watts that um, I've been uh, really appreciating and, and feel like his, his way of articulating aspects of Taoism um, and just spirituality in general have really helped me clarify, sharpen my own thoughts and experience about what we're talking about here. But the question is something like this. She says, let's say I'm actually wondering why I meditate. Why do I meditate? What is the real goal of meditation? Is there a goal? I do my practice every morning or with you or following some instructions from Judith Blackstone, which seems to be a very different practice, she says. And I don't know, finally, if I'm making any progress in my practice. So this is the central question here is about progress. What does progress in practice mean? I don't know if I'm making any progress. What are the steps? You explained that in, in, a, in a retreat that I attended with you, that there were some steps that you should achieve that showed you were progressing. But for me, I don't really see in my practice any progression. My mind is still desperately restless. I try to use that time to find answers or to try to understand my patterns or trauma, but is that meditation? I'm quite confused. So I, I appreciate this question. Um, and this is not an uncommon one. Um, so the, the talk could be called Dear Desperately Restless. <laughs> Dear Desperately Restless, an advice, a meditation column of advice. So she's the, the woman that wrote in um, is accurate that um, I think there are kind of steps in meditative practice that um, kind of unfold naturally. And, and, and the way I laid them out in retreat was to 
to present what I think is the natural unfolding of steps that one would take in terms of coming to understand one's experience. Um, so this really begs the question, what do we mean by progress? What, what is implied by meditative progress? And um, oftentimes when we think of progress, we, we tend to hold it in a kind of linear way where we're starting at one point A and we're, we have this idea of where we want to be moving towards point B. And we kind of determine as we're moving along how close we are relative to A and how close we are to B to determine our success. If we're getting closer to B, we're happy. If we feel like we're not getting closer to B, st stuck at A, we feel um, like something's uh, not going well or something's obstructed. And um, today, in fact, I was out on my, what's well, becoming a habitual walk. Uh, I, I feel very lucky that we're now living near a, um, a state park in Maine, and I'm able to uh, get out on some trails on a, on a mountain almost most days with my dog. And it's really become this wonderful um, sort of contemplative time where a lot of the time, I should be honest, I'm having conversations with many of you, if not all of you. I'm sort of rehearsing and planning and just churning through themes that are, that are coming to me. But as I was thinking about this question of progress, um, I started trying to think through it in terms of yin and yang um, understanding, yin and yang theory. And for that, um, and for the clarity of yin and yang theory, I'm, I'm, I'm indebted to, as I said, Alan Watts here. Um, oftentimes, and this is true when I first started acupuncture school, but oftentimes we can conceive of and hold yin and yang um, relationship in our mind as the relationship between two opposing energies or two opposing principles. There's a, a kind of the unity of oppositions idea that that there's, there's a high and a low, and that somehow in that opposition, there may be a conflict between the two, like good and bad, or, or compassionate or harsh, or kind versus um, violent. There's somehow this, this conflict between the two. And Professor Alan Watts here um, is very clear that in Chinese thought, yin and yang are referring to a polarity two ends of a unified experience or two, uni two ends of a unified principle. And he says this here, he says, quote, people who have been brought up in the aura of Christian and Hebrew aspirations find this frustrating. They find this principle of, of, of polarity frustrating because it seems to deny any possibility of progress, an ideal which flows from their linear as distinct from cyclical, their linear view of time and history. Indeed, the whole enterprise of Western technology is to, quote, make the world a better place, to have pleasure without pain, wealth without poverty, and health without sickness. And then I added on life without death, being without non-being, progress without regression or decline. <clears throat> and as I was reflecting on that, um, I think many people, uh, and myself de definitely fell into these, these traps and continue to fall in these traps as I, as I continue on, but um, I think many people uh, view the progress of, of, of practice as moving from a kind of disheveled, stressed out, enervated, anxious, depressed, fill in the blank state into a calmer, tranquil, 
more equanimous, compassionate, um, let's say, lack of a better word, enlightened state. And what tends to happen is that you start out practicing as your normal sense of self with all those issues that we mentioned. And you'll practice for maybe a year or two. And curiously, you might find that all the things you began with are still occurring. That restless thing, what was the phrase? The, the desperately restless quality, the desperate restlessness is still there after a, a sincere period of practice. And the existence of that restlessness or the existence of the whatever it is seems to invalidate any progress. After all, if you're a meditator, shouldn't you be better able to do whatever it is people think you should be able to do? You know, I get often, it's like, you should never get angry if you're a meditator. You should never have difficulty falling asleep if you're a meditator. And both of those aren't true for me at all. Um, so in terms of moving in a linear way in a certain direction, I think that's a setup for frustration in, in terms of our, our expectations of practice. And this is this this next bit is going to be a little bit harder to articulate, so we I have to rely on metaphor at times. But one way of describing progress, if we want to use that term, is that you could say as we progress in the meditative, contemplative, spiritual path, whatever tools we use, we come to a deepening understanding about ourselves and a deepening understanding of both understanding and clarity and confusion. So the, the two sides of the same coin, we start to understand two sides of the same coin more clearly. We start to experience the inseparability of yin and yang. And this leads me to the second quotation from Alan Watts, where he's speaking about this difficulty. He says, it's difficult in our logic to see that being and non-being experience of being and non-being are mutually generative and mutually supportive. For it is with the, for it is the great and imaginary terror of the Western man that nothingness will be the permanent end of the universe. So whenever we, you know, this is very common when, when, when uh, Westerners hear about nothingness in Eastern spirituality, this can get very threatening. It can feel very um, scary. He said, he continues, he says, we do not easily grasp the point that the void is creative and that being comes from non-being, just as sound from silence and light from space. We do not easily grasp the point that the void is creative and that being comes from non-being, just as sound from silence and light from space. And roughly somewhere in the book called Tao, the Watercourse Way, which he co-wrote, which collaboration with Al Chengliang Huang, a Tai Chi teacher, I believe. Um, amidst these, these passages that I've just read from you, he inserts a, a chapter from the Tao Te Ching. It speaks to this, and this is what I wanted to really develop here. 
the chapter from the Tao Te Ching, chapter 11, Tao Te Ching, sorry, from Lao Tzu, speaks to the, um, the intrinsic importance and generative creativity of emptiness. 30 spokes unite at the wheel's hub. It is the center hole that makes it useful. Shape clay into a vessel. It is the space within that makes it useful. Cut out doors and windows for a room. It is the holes which make it useful. Therefore, profit comes from what is there. The usefulness, useful, usefulness from what is not there. Now, I had a, I have a long relationship with Lao Tzu. I, I think I start the author of this this book. I, I came across him in high school when I didn't understand a single word, and then back in college when I was kind of trying to take some humanities courses for a major. I had to tick off a sort of multicultural studies class. So I took it. I was really curious about East Asian uh, literature. I took an East Asian great works course. And we went and I was kind of excited about that because I knew from high school that, that Lao Tzu, his book, the Tao Te Ching was quite, quite simple. It's, it's a, a very short book of little poems and aphorisms. Um, it wouldn't tax my reading time. <laughs> create a lot of extra work. I could read read 30 chapters of Lao Tzu in a half hour, no problem. Not that I understood it anymore. And that's what I realized in studying in college. It still kind of eluded me. And even reading this today, I had to go back a few times. What does he mean there in that curious last line? Therefore, profit. Therefore, profit comes from what is there. Usefulness from what is not there. You think of the the spokes, the, it's the empty hub of the wheel that lets the wheel spin. It's the emptiness of the vessel of the mug or bowl or cup that makes it useful. It's the, the openness, the open space of a door, the open space of a room that allows us to use what's in there, make profit of it. You can, you can, you, you can imagine a having just bought a house, imagine trying to buy a house or rent an apartment that didn't have doors. <laughs> How useful would it be? Not very much. So in spiritual terms, this empty hole, this whole nature at the heart of our being is what illuminates and makes sense of the world of polarity. And so I was out walking today, reflecting on this. And I really sort of dove into this metaphor of a door, this idea of a door space. You can have the door frame and the door space. And I wanted to I was trying to imagine if I could ask you just to imagine yourself standing in the door space of any room you've ever had and sense what you see. It's by standing in that clear open space that you're able to see the objects in the room. You can see the furniture, you can see the chairs, the table, the artwork, the lighting, the people that are in the room. You can see all those things. If the door was sealed or shut, 
no space was there. No, you wouldn't be able to perceive anything. And so the door space, as I try to make a note of, the door space itself makes visible all that is beyond it. The whole of the door makes everything visible beyond it. As Emerson said, he, Ralph Waldo Emerson, I think, had the same insight. But he, instead of calling it a door space, he called it the transparent eyeball. The direct experience of, of like your head is just really this transparent. It's this transparent space of an eyeball-like quality that just receives and connects to the manifest world of experience, sees everything. Now, normally we don't, and this is, I've reflected on this many times in these talks, but normally we often forget this space, this hole at the center of our being. We forget it or never even recognized it. My hunch is most people have recognized it often in childhood, but then that gets layered over with all sorts of ideas of who you are. And we forget this transparent open space of being. So we forget it. And then the result is we tend to identify with the content of our experience. Identify with our feelings, our thoughts, just as if you could personify the door space, the door space would forget that it was a door space and suddenly start talking about how it was, it was really identified with or attached to the table or the chairs or the artwork. And when we attach to anything, the, the, what, why this makes this very difficult is when we attach to anything, we attach to a piece of the whole. And as a result, we have a partial view of the whole. Partiality is born out of identity with a piece of the whole. And as soon as we're partial, the whole experience of duality arises, this and that, me versus not me, the goalposts of what is bounded by the self and what's not self, all of that duality arises in our experience. And that this, that polarity, the polarity of yin and yang becomes oppositions breeding conflict when we're partial. So while I was out thinking about all this, walking along, I, um, I realized I got lost. <laughs> Here I was so enamored with my own whole of in, in the center of my being, just letting the world pass through. I got lost. I missed a turn. And, and, and I started to get frustrated when I realized I missed my turn because when I, traditionally when I, or typically, not tradition, but typically when I go out for my walk, I, I've studied the map of this park and the map has, you know, the, the park is boundaried and there's a large loop that goes around the entire perimeter of the park with lots of connections in there. But generally speaking, when I go, I like to do the large loop. It gives me a sense of accomplishment. It gives me a sense of having having covered ground. What I don't like to do is that within the large loop, there are these kind of amoebic-like um, mini loops. And the, these mini loops have these amoebic-like pseudopods that branch off and, and come back in. So it goes, it loops out and comes back, loops out and comes back, loops out. So you're doing this sort of almost what seems like an inane circle of just going forward and backwards, going back, forward and backwards, moving around a circle or moving around a clock. 
and you never really cover much territory. You're just more doing switchbacks back and forth the whole time. And there I found, I was getting frustrated because I found myself on one of these inner loops doing switchbacks. One moment I'm facing the sun, next moment I'm turned around, the sun's to my back. I'm going towards the sun again, then I'm moving away from it and, by, and just endlessly going back and forth like this. Coming and going towards the sun, away from the sun. And I stopped to feel, this is like a, a, I started to feel like a rat in a maze. And I felt like there's, there was nothing good coming from this walk. I wasn't making any distance. I wasn't making my normal progress that I would like to say I made on a walk. And then it occurred to me, and you may be sensing this already, that the, that the enclosed little mini loop that I was on that had all these switchbacks on it was very much like a labyrinth. And I started to think about this a lot because I've known about labyrinths for years, but I've never personally been that drawn to them for kind of personal reasons in that they, they tend to evoke um, something in, in the spiritual landscape that I don't feel very drawn to. They tend to invoke the idea of sacred ritual and sacred geometry and, you know, repetitively doing something to bring about your your own um, state of being to be in resonance with with higher energies or celestial influences or whatever it is and i may be completely wrong on all of that i should say because i don't i've never studied anything about labyrinths but that's just my that's sort of like my sense of this is not for me so whatever i'm going to say about labyrinths are entirely my own intuition and um, are subject to my own error but as i was on my own ad hoc labyrinth this morning, it occurred to me that maybe what the labyrinth is doing on a, on a kind of a perceptual level is that it's explicitly frustrating the mind that thinks it can get somewhere beyond where it is. Then going forward and back, going forward and back, which in itself is a distillation as I, as I was reflecting on it, the going forward and backward is a distillation of what we do in life. I drove to the office here. I'm here now. I'll drive home tonight. I'll go to the grocery store and drive back. Get up in the morning, go to bed at night. The going and coming is, is iterated endlessly throughout all aspects of our life. And if you're like me, and I think you, many of you probably share this too, because it's a human thing, you're always waiting to get past something to the next thing. We do something so that we can then relax when the dishes are done or when the floor is swept or when the sheets are clean, whatever it is. We're doing things to get beyond it, to get to the good stuff. And so there I was on my own labyrinth, seeing myself coming and going. And I realized that that in a way, and this is, I, I, I will flesh this out with another Alan Watts line, but in a way, the labyrinth was trying to teach something beyond going from point A to point B. As Alan Watts says, the yin-yang symbol is not what we call dualism. It's not really trying to signify opposition. The yin-yang symbol is rather an explicit duality, an explicit duality 
ex- that expresses an implicit unity. An implicit unity. And I thought about, I read this when I came back from my labyrinth walk this morning. But it occurred to me that on one level, the labyrinth is just the same thing. It's an explicit duality of coming and going or back and forthness. If you've ever done walking meditation in the Buddhist sense, in the early Buddhist sense, you know that you just point, point up, you get a path from A to B and you just go back and forth for the hour. <laughs> You're not going anywhere. And, people, and it looks like utter insanity to anybody not doing it. But the labyrinth is kind of like a contained form that, that, that contains the duality of going forward and backwards, going forward and backwards, back and forthness which expresses an implicit unity of going nowhereness, of a unity of already always hereness. Ajahn Chah, it just occurs to me, Ajahn Chah had a, a, a lovely teaching where he would um, if sort of a phrase as a question, he would say, if you can't go back and you can't go forward, where can you go? If you can't go forward and you can't go back, where do you go? And so a clever person would say, well, you stay still. It's like, nope, you can't stay still either. And then another clever person says, well, you can go up or down. He said, nope, you can't go up or down. You can't go forward, you can't go backward, can't stand still, can't go up, can't go down, where do you go? And the answer is, if you, on a logical level, is where the question itself is invalid, where it doesn't apply. Because wherever we go, the whole, the clear space of knowing is already always here. It's never moving anywhere. Things are moving through it, but it doesn't move. So I'm going to read I, I, some of the, Sometimes I try to speak just extemporaneously, and I'm going to try to read you some of my notes because this might come across a little bit more clearly. But the way I see it is all practice, all whatever form the practice takes, all practice is more or less like this. There's a form, whether it's sitting meditation, walking meditation, yoga flow, whatever form it is. If we're practicing at the level of a self trying to attain something, to get more of something and less of something. Practice will frustrate the sense of self that sees duality and seeks to curry one half to the extinction of the other. Practice will frustrate the hell out of the sense of self that sees life in terms of duality and therefore seeks to curry one half of the equation to the extinction of the other. More presence at the expense of absence. How many times have you beaten yourselves up? How many times have I beaten myself up for not being present enough on the cushion or present enough in my daily life? Not mindful enough. Seeks more clarity rather than confusion more kindness than harshness, 
more wakefulness than drifting off. And that frustration, which was wonderfully expressed by desperately restless, that frustration is very understandable and I know it. But when we really feel that frustration, that can become its own point, inflection point or leverage to wake up out of identification with form, thoughts, feelings, sensations, I wake up, the door space wakes up of not being identified with the table and chairs and furniture anymore and wakes up to its own empty nature, which is not an emptiness of annihilation. It's an emptiness that is paradoxically full with everything. So from this perspective, the self delights in remembering the implicit unity of polarity. Don't have to get rid of the restlessness, never did. We see it as part of a polarity between restlessness and calm. You don't get one without the other. And when you rest in the, in the, in the clear space of your, of your awareness, the awareness is always able to hold it both in an unperturbed, clear manner. So <clears throat> there's a lot of talk about mindfulness these days. Um, and the, the term, the, the Pali term, that is the language that the Buddhist teachings were uh, codified in, the, the Pali term for mindfulness is sati, S-A-T-I. And sati, the, the, the root of it, the, 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 the sort of etymology of the word is it comes from a word for memory, to remember. And in more contemporary terms, it's, it's translated as mindfulness or awareness. And oftentimes there's uh, appendages attacked onto that, like awareness with compassion, awareness without judgment, things like that. And all that's fine. I've been sort of thinking about that and, and uh, want to share my own sense of a definition for this term now, which is simply awareness that remembers itself. Awareness that remembers itself, just as a door space remembering its empty nature, not mistaking itself to be a table. <clears throat> so I'm going to close this talk, and I'm doing well on time. I'm going to close this talk with a short bit of, I don't know if we can call it poetry yet, but a, a short bit of verse that, that flowed off my pen this afternoon. I'm not sure what the title this is, but the working title will be An Ode to the Donut Hole of Being. An Ode to the Donut Hole of Being to the humble hub of emptiness that bears all fullness, to Emerson's transparent eyeball that embraces the manifest all. When I remember thee, me holy of all holes, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, just as Julian assured. But when mistaken and forgotten, all manner of thing is suddenly rather rotten. So let me return and remember. And when forgetting returns, let me remember again that forgetting and remembering were never not but one.
Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. Um, and again, if you would like to receive my semi-regular Dharma letter, my letter from the path, where I engage in a in more of a public conversation with a teaching or a teacher or my own practice, um, please hop over to my site at joshsummers.net forward slash subscribe. And when you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll receive access to two yin yoga practices along with a series of reflections about yin yoga in general. And you'll also be getting my semi-regular uh, letters from the path, which I hope you enjoy. Those letters likely will also be sitting on my site as blogs. Um, so if you, whatever reason, would prefer not to receive the letters from the path, uh, you can still avail yourself of the letter content and read the letters by heading over to my site on the blog section and you'll see them archived there. Okay, until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful week, and stay strong, stay safe, and practice on.